We're taking our Bibles. We're going to head to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Sermon notes are in the bulletin that you have with you, or the ushers are going to move through the auditorium. They have some extra sermon notes. Just raise your hand, and they'll hand you one of those so you can follow along. We're going to 1 Samuel chapter 7. I want to start this morning by just thinking with, for, with you for a moment that there are some really dumb things that happen, dumb criminals you know, that do things that are very foolish, that are wrong and get into a lot of trouble. Probably, these are some of the dumbest, is individuals who try to describe them, to disguise themselves with magic markers or who put duct tape on their face. Can you imagine? This is their disguise. It really, that would hurt. That would hurt. By the way, the magic marker was permanent ink. So they put on. Or it could be this individual. A fellow in Beaver Creek, Ohio, wanted to go in and rob the bank. He was so flustered that he fainted as he approached the, the lady. They called 911. 911 comes, and he comes too while they're ministering to him, and he still hands the clerk the note that says this is a robbery. <laughs> or this, in, this guy, the guy on a bike in San Francisco, he's going along, sees that two people, a husband and wife or a couple, are standing there, and they're working with the phones. He uh, rides by in the bike, grabs the woman's phone, and takes off like, wow, I got her phone. Unbeknownst to him that at that very moment, they were setting up their phones for a location device to know where each other were at any one moment as they toured the city. The police found him within minutes. Here's a dumb one. Fellow loses his license. Somebody took his wallet. They took his license. His job is he's a security guard or a bouncer at this uh, nightclub. And two days after his wallet was taken, stolen, some young man comes up and guess whose license he hands to this very man as his ID. Here's an individual where it happened to a church down in Texas. Somebody went into the church, broke in the office, and they dis disconnected the safe from the wall, and they're starting to carry it out. Now, safes are heavy. So they got as far as out the door and into the next yard. And the person was real insistent that it doesn't make any difference. It's the middle of the night. I'm still going to try to break into this safe. So there in the front yard, that, per that, that neighbor's to the church's yard, he's trying to break in and pound into the safe. The neighbor comes out. The neighbor arrests him because he's a police officer off-duty. Here's one for you. A lady is stopped at a checkpoint, you know, checking license, checking uh, registration, and it's also sobriety test. She is drunk as can be. She gets upset with the police officers. She's mad at that they stopped her. She says, if you're going to really stop somebody who's really, really, really drunk, you should stop my husband. He's in the car behind me. <laughs> this individual was there in, in Great Falls, Montana. And uh, in his car, he had some drug paraphernalia, things that were illegal. So he got stopped for a normal traffic-type violation. And he, they said, you know, what's your ID? He's not going to give his ID. He thinks he's going to just, you know, pass off. So out of the air, he picks a name that he's so-and-so. And I don't have my identification with me. They run the check. That name that he chose randomly has three outstanding warrants in that very next county. So they arrest him thinking that's the guy. They go through. They find the drug paraphernalia. He confesses that that's not his name and has a hard time you know, not being charged with the others. But he's arrested for all the drug stuff that's going on. Or you could be bright like these two guys. They, uh, the police in this town, in Dayton, Ohio, they get this phone call. It's a 911 call. When they answer and identify themselves, the person hangs up. Well, 911 call, what do the police have to do? 
They have to go to the place. They have to check it out to find out if there is something serious going on. They go and they track it down. It's a hotel. They get there and they go to the room that made the phone call. It's on the second floor. And the persons are acting odd. It ends up, the, the short of the long story is this. This is one of the biggest drug busts that they, the police are able to, to uh, process there in Dayton, Ohio, two years ago. Because these people, there was two different drug dealers that were staying in the hotel. One was on the second floor, one was on the first floor. And the police tracked them down because they had one of them who was on the second floor was going to dial his friend's room, which was 119. He dialed 911, and the police tracked him down. Or you could be like the three who broke into this home in Florida. They thought, wow, we have hit it big. We not only got the TV and the stereos and everything else, but we also found all kinds of drugs in canisters. They smoked the drugs, thinking it was great, until the police tracked them, found out that they had smoked the cremains of two pets and one person. Not too bright. Not too smart. Israel is not too bright, not too smart. In 1 Samuel 4, we dealt this study last week, how Israel does some really dumb criminal things against the Lord. Now, I'm not going to rehearse and read through the text of chapter 4, 5, and 6. We're going to focus in on chapter 7. But let me back up and give you a little bit of the background information for those of you who weren't here last week and uh, just remind you where we are in this story. What happens in 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, 6, 7? It's an ongoing story. It's a continuation of what's happening in Israel. The Jews have gotten together and they decided we've had enough of the Philistines. Now we have a number of records that indicate uh, that the Philistines had come into this region. They had come from the Aegean coast and now they had moved down into this region. We're now trying to take over the land from the Canaanites and the Jews. And as they were moving in, the Canaanites and the Jews started resisting. The, the Excuse me. The Jews had done some resistance under Samson about 40 years earlier, but as a group they hadn't. They let Samson do it himself. Now, after Samson's been off the scene, here they are. They say, okay, we've had enough. We're going to go to battle. Chapter 4, they go into battle. They don't pray. They don't ask God's leading. They just go into battle against the Philistines. The Philistines whoop them. They lose the battle and 4,000 men. They come back. And if you read in chapter 4, look down to verses 2 and 3, you'll see that when they come back from the battle, they say, Lord, why have you smitten us? They blame God for their loss. Even though they have, they have at this time not gone and repented of sin, not cleaned up their house before they went into battle, they get beaten and they blame God. And they're, so, they're saying, God, something's wrong. And without even praying, other than accusing God, they decide, let's do a second battle. And so they line up their groups, their troops, and they go into a second battle. This time, if you read verses 4 and 5, what they do is they take the Ark of the Covenant, that special piece of furniture that was on the very inside of the tabernacle, they take it out into battle, as if it's like a rabbit's foot, that they can take into battle and it'll give us the victory. We'll win because we have the Ark of the Covenant out there. And so they go into battle and they go against the Philistines, again, without repenting, without checking their own hearts. They're just, you know, you know, just out there just impulsively doing what they want to do. They get into battle. This time they, are, they lose even more. 
30,000 of their warriors, including community leaders and others, are, are killed. Not only do they lose the battle and a lot of their leadership, they lose the, some of the high priests, some of the, lead, the leaders in the religious realm who had gone with them, Hophni and Phinehas. Now those aren't real spiritual guys, but they were in office and in that position. And worst of all, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. It's captured by the Philistines. The Philistines take it away. Well, when the messenger comes from the battle scene and reaches back into the hometown of where the Jews are gathered, there is the high priest Eli. He hears the news from the messenger. When he hears it all, that his sons are killed, when he hears that the Ark of the Covenant is taken, he collapses backwards in the chair. And it says he's an old man, he's in his 90s, and he's blind, can't see, but he hears it, and he collapses backward, breaks his neck, has this major heart attack, he's done. Now the people have lost the ark. They have lost two battles to the Philistines. They have lost most of their leadership. They have lost you know, all hope. And right about that time, either Hophni or Phineas' wife, she's expecting a child. When she hears that her husband is dead, the ark of the covenant is taken, that her father-in-law just died, what she does is she goes into labor premature labor. And we read in the passage down in chapter 4, it says that, it says in verse 21, when she is bearing the child, she names the child real quickly on her deathbed. And if you read in chapter 4, verse 21, she named the child, remember the name? Ichabod. Ichabod. Now this isn't Ichabod Crane, okay, from that story, but she says Ichabod, which literally means the glory of the Lord is gone. This is, by the way, very descriptive of the attitude of the individuals right now. They are defeated. She is representing all the ladies. She is representing the children. She is representing, by what she's saying, this is the state of mind of the Jews. The glory of the Lord is gone. Woe is us. There is no hope. There is no help. And here they are, all of a sudden totally defeated. Now, when we jump to chapter 7, when you go to chapter 7, things are changing. It's not a long time after what happens in chapter 4, but there's a drastic change, a huge change that takes place. The setting for chapter 7 is Samuel has replaced Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. He is now in position as the new leader, the judge, the prophet. The people are coming now to listen to him. They have a totally different attitude when they come and talk to him, as we'll see in chapter 7. When It's about a 20-year span between chapter 6 and 7, and what happens then in chapter 7 is that Samuel is speaking, and he gets all the Jews together. They haven't been together now for 20 years, but he gets them together. They are gathering, and in this time of gathering, he all of a sudden comes up with another name, not for a child, but for a spot. He builds an altar, and he calls the altar Ebenezer. It's a term that we know. We use it for towns as well. But it's in the, in the matter of these three chapters, there are two famous names or titles that come out of this section of Scripture. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord is departed. Ebenezer. Ebenezer literally means this, the stone of help. Or it was given when they built this altar and this pillar that they say this is the stone of help. Or literally, here's the idea. God is our helper. This altar, this, this stone of remembrance, was to remind everybody there to gather all these people together in a worship mode to worship God who is our helper. And so he gets these people, he puts the stone up, and he is saying to them, and you look down in verse 12, and it's interesting where he uses the words, 
that he says, hitherto hath the Lord helped, helped us. Or God is our helper. The word hitherto is interesting there at that moment. That what he's doing is he is saying up to this point. Up to this point. That's literally the word in the Hebrew. Up to this point. Now I don't know which one it means. Up to this point physically, territorially, God has helped us to recover the lands. Is he talking territorially, physically? Or is he talking temporally? Up to this point of time. Up to this moment of time, it seems to me in context, it's probably the latter. But he is saying, people, we need to worship. We need to gather. We need to celebrate. We need to rejoice in Ebenezer, that God has been our help and is continuing to be our help. And he's getting the people involved with worship and praise and giving honor to God because God is our helper. What ways? What was going on? How did God help them? In the past and in the present. Exactly what has gone on in chapters 4, 5, 6. That leads him in chapter 7 to say, Hitherto Ebenezer, the Lord is our helper. And I want to point out three different ways that God has helped these people. Was and is helping them. Number one was this. God helped them to clean up the mess that they had created with their bad decisions. This was worthy of praise for the Jews. That God was and did help them to clean up the mess that they had made with bad decisions. Set the scene again. Set the scene is the Jews had lost the ark. They had lost the ark of the covenant because in a bad, rash decision, they had taken it into the battlefield. It had been, it had been now absconded by the Philistines. Chapters 5 and 6, we looked at last, e last Sunday evening at length. Let me just abbreviate what we said in chapters 5 and 6 last Sunday night. How God helped them to get the ark back. The story goes this way if you read chapters 5 and 6. The Philistines took the ark of the covenant to their capital city. They have five capitals. The one that they took it to was Ashdod. They took it to the capital city and they put it in the temple that was dedicated to Dagon. Read about it in chapter 5. Where they put it in his temple. By the way, Dagon was the god of war for the Philistines. So they put the ark there. Here's the, ta the, the statue of Dagon. And they put the ark of the covenant at his feet. As if Dagon is superior to Jehovah God represented by the ark. They put it in the temple. And if you remember the story, the first morning they come in and Dagon has fallen over. I find it just ironic that they say they put their God back up. Think about that. Your God has fallen over and you've got to help him up. And you're still worshiping. The next day, when they come, not only has he fallen over, but it says in the Hebrew that he is executed. Your English probably says, cut off. That his head and his arms were cut off. It's the Hebrew word for executed. And so all of a sudden, they, their God is decimated, and then plagues break out throughout all the area, the region. Well, the people of Ashdod, they are responding by saying, we don't want this ark here anymore. It is bad luck to us. We want it out of here. And so they see the city of the, the governing elders. There's five kings that work in tandem. One king of Ashdod, one of Akron, one of Gath, and two other cities. And so they get together and they say, send it to Gath. 
We want it out of here. Let's send it to another town, a town that is closer to the Jewish border. So they send the ark to Gath, and it says in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that Gath has very great destruction. So the people in Gath say, we want it out of here. The kings meet, they say, let's send it to another city. Let's send it to Ekron, another capital city. It goes there, and the people again suffer the same fate. Down in verse 12, it talks about how those people are dying, and they cry unto heaven. In other words, they're turning to Jehovah God, spare us. It's almost like, the, as he said last week, the people of Nineveh, when Jonah goes there, these people who turn to God of creation, when all of a sudden they are suffering so deeply and so sorely. And so the Philistines as a group decide that ark's got to go back. Chapter 6 is how they send the ark back, how they transport it on a, on a new cart with oxen that, who are two female oxen that have baby cows that they, they take apart uh, from the calf, baby cows and miraculously, supernaturally, the cows leave their calves. They take that ark in a straight line to the city where the Jews, the closest city where the Jews occupy. And we read about how they come to that city in chapter 6, about halfway through, and the Jews, they get the ark back. Now, we talked about last Sunday morning, that first town that it shows up, they open up, the Jews open up the ark. They want to see what's inside. How foolish. How foolish. But chapter 7 tells us what happened and where it ends up. We read in chapter 7, verse 1, And the men of Kerjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it's in Jewish territory. It's now in Jewish hands. They have somebody watching over it. They didn't take it back to Shiloh. I mentioned this last week because Shiloh was destroyed at this time. The rest of the tabernacle was destroyed by the Philistines in the second battle. And so then what happens is now it's put in Abinadab's. We don't know who he is. There's no record beyond this passage about who he is, what his family's like. We don't know. Other than this is a Levitical town. These guys are priestly figures. They're taking care of the ark. But verse 2 is the interesting one. And it came to pass while the ark abode in kerjath Jerem that the time was long. It's 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What you have here is you have uh, this account where the ark has been taken back. And there's a lot of lessons Chapters 5 and 6, we talked about it last Sunday night. A lot of lessons. Here's the main lesson that we want to just remind you about this morning. In grace, God helps people out to, make, to clean up the mess that we often make. He did it for these people. How he did that in grace, that they unwisely lost the ark. He miraculously works that the Philistines give it back. And in chapter 7, it shows up, and it's now in secure spot, taken care of for at least two decades. This isn't the only time God helped people clean up messes that they got themselves into. We can go back into a previous story. We can go back into Genesis, and we can talk about how Abraham meets Abimelech. And when he meets Abimelech, he says to Abimelech, this is my sister, Sarah. And he introduces his wife, who happens to be his sister. You can worry about all those complications at another time. But he doesn't want to say, this is my wife, because he's afraid Abimelech would kill him. So he lies about his relationship, half-lie. She is his half-sister, but he, he doesn't say, it's my wife. And as a result, Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. 
What a mess they got themselves into. Now his wife is taken. Now what happens if this man has relationships with his wife? What will that do to the promised seed that's been given? Oh, the whole thing gets so complicated. God intervened and got Sarah back for Abraham. And then God rectified the situation between Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham, in a rash, scary moment, fearful moment, made a huge mess. God got him out of the mess. Moses, knowing that he is the deliverer, how he knew that we we aren't told. But Acts 7 says he knew as a young man when he was 40 years old he was to be the deliverer. He takes it upon himself to act. When he sees that 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 Egyptian is abusing one of the slaves that he now has learned is his relative, he goes and kills the Egyptian. And he hides the Egyptian in the sand. He made a huge mess. By running ahead of God, by not seeking God's face of is this the right time? And as a result, he ends up having to flee because he's a wanted man. And he ends up in the desert for 40 more years. But God works things out and cleans up the mess. And when he gets back into Egypt, he comes back and he's a respected prophet of God at that moment. We can go a little bit further. We can talk about Limelech and his wife Naomi. In fear and in famine, they leave the land of Israel and they go to Moab. They go to Moab and as they live in this land where they're not supposed to live, they live there for a period of time. They raise their two boys And they marry off their two boys, one to Ophrah, and the other one marries Ruth. And then all of a sudden, within a short time, the two boys and dad, they all die. And Naomi is in a mess. She's in a foreign land. Her sons are dead. Her husband is dead. She's left with two daughter-in-laws that are not even a part of her her descendants. they're, They're foreign. And God helps to clean up the mess and works it out. We can come to the New Testament. We can come where Barnabas and Paul have conflicts between them that arise to such a degree that gets so intense they decide not to work together. They're upset with each other. They're angry with each other. They break their friendship, their fellowship, and they go separate directions. And God works in such a way that things get rectified. That over a period of time, that Paul will write about the issue. The issue was whether or not to take Barnabas' nephew with them again. His name is John Mark. Later on, where Paul had said, I'm not going with you. If you take him, I'm not going with you. Later on, he writes and he says, John Mark is profitable unto me. God worked when there was this conflict in such a way that over a period of time, God cleaned up the mess that they got themselves into. God does this all the time. God is the Ebenezer that helps us to clean up messes that we get ourselves into. That doesn't mean we should go out and purposely get ourselves into a mess. But it is good to know that when we do things, bad decisions financially, get ourselves in over our head financially, God still provides and helps us when we turn back to him and seek his help and guidance to get our needs met, to get the bills paid up, to carry out our responsibilities. You take a certain job, a job that is not a wise decision, and it's got a lot of tensions, a lot of difficulties. It's amazing how God helps us to handle those things and can bring something good out of this mess that we get ourselves into. It it can be commitments to friends. You make a promise to a friend you shouldn't have made. 
that you shouldn't have said you would do this or do that for him. That's not wise. And God gets involved, helps clean up the mess, and keeps us from really getting into a lot more trouble. It's amazing how God works in the area. Some people get married when they ought not to get married. Some people, the timing isn't right. The person that they've chosen, they should have been a little bit more maturing going on. Or worse yet, they don't invest in doing their part in their marriage. Oh, and it gets to be a mess. But when they turn to the Lord and ask the Lord to be the Ebenezer, to help them to do right, to be wise, and to make some changes, it's amazing how God can take a messy situation and can, can all of a sudden prosper it and make it into something good. You're one of those people, you can't control your own schedule because you can't say no. And so all of a sudden you're in over your head. But when you turn to Ebenezer, how Ebenezer helps you to get priorities right, get through the situation, our God is Ebenezer in our everyday life, helping us with the messes. Want to see the biggest mess of all? That he is Ebenezer to us. It all went started in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat that fruit. I provide everything you need, but don't eat that one fruit. You know the story. They do. And as a result, all of a sudden, they put themselves in a very, very difficult situation. They violated God's word. They, they, they need to be protected from that other fruit that's there that would keep them in that estate of, of spiritual contamination forever. God puts them out of the garden, and he clothes them. When they had tried to take the, the greens and cover themselves ineffectively, God, by picture, says, I'm going to provide for you. He slaughters the animal, gives them the skins, puts them out, but then he makes the ultimate cleanup of the mess that they have created that has passed to every one of us. Because of our great, 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 great ancestors in the Garden of Eden, we've got the mess of sin in our life. That we choose sin. That we choose to go against God, not for God. That he has to work in our hearts and work in our lives. And he cleans it up by sending the best person possible to clean up our mess. Jesus Christ comes, lives a perfect life, then gives his own life on Calvary and dies in our place so we don't have to suffer the penalty of our sin. Then he rises again, except God accepts his sacrifice, and he offers to every one of us total, complete forgiveness if we just believe in him. And when we believe in him, he not only removes the penalty of sin, but he removes the power of sin from dominating our lives. Ebenezer. That's the God that we are gathered to worship this morning. That's the one that the Jews gathered around Samuel and said, tell us about him. And he put the stone up and said, Ebenezer, God is our help. God is the one who, who assists us because God helped them and us to clean up the messes that we often make with bad decisions. That's a God worth worshiping, who cares enough to help us when we do these things so often. He does something else. God helped the Jews to overcome their personal weaknesses their personal addictions. This is Ebenezer. This is why he says, let's celebrate him in verse 12, because God has helped us to overcome that which is dominating our lives. Let me show you the scene. Let's back up a little bit. Let's go to chapter 7 when they're all gathered together in verse 3. Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel and said, if you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then right now, could put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth 
from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Do you you realize what that phrase means? That means at that moment that Samuel is speaking, they still are chasing after strange gods, including Ashtaroth, who is a female god, who according to some of the ancient writings, the Jews were saying was the wife of Jehovah and attributing to Jehovah, blending the two religions, trying to bring in this paganism, and blending it together and saying, we still worship the Lord God, Jehovah, but we also want to worship his wife, Ashtaroth. What a mess. What a problem. Now, what you need to realize is how attractive and tempting and alluring this paganism was. It was evil. It was horrible. But it played to their most, the most basic desires. It was very common throughout the region where they lived. It was something that all the others around them were doing. And it, 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 it was alluring in that the worship that was done with Ashtaroth and the pagan gods was very sexual and promoted personal sexuality, unrampant or unbridled sexuality. There was a lot of drink and drunkenness. The type of evil that says to the individual, you can do whatever you want, and this is your way of worshiping God. Jehovah and Ashtaroth are husband and wife. They act like husband and wife. So you can come to the temple and you can carry on with any other person of the opposite gender, and you'll be worshiping Jehovah and Ashtaroth that way. It was evil. Was it something that people gravitated towards? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Because it was unbridled passion. Playing to the flesh. Now, I want you to understand that these practices have been going on a long time by chapter 7. By chapter 7, this isn't something new. This is something that's been going on for generations. When you open the book of Judges, and when we first started the series some 27 messages ago, we stopped at this text. We looked at it. And we read in in Judges chapter 2 that they forsook Jehovah and him alone, and they were serving Baal and Ashtaroth. That was in 1425 B.C. Now, when we read in chapter 7, put these things away, we are at 1140 B.C. What that means is this. They have had this worship of this God longer than the United States has been in existence. It is a part of their culture now. It is a part of their their tradition. It has become a part of their family, their walk, their talk, their Sabbath worship. This is something that is now ingrained deeply in their society. When they've been told over the last 200 years, you shouldn't do this, they couldn't get it out of their system. Why? It was so addictive. It was so powerful. It was so attractive to them that they are now totally under its bondage. But Samuel stands up and he says, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he goes on to say, If you do this, you'll have victory. Now look at verse 4. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam, Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. They were successful in overcoming this spiritual addiction. They were able to break the shackles that have now been around them for all these years. How is that possible? Ebenezer. The Lord is our helper. The Lord is the one who is enabling us to all of a sudden overcome that which is is wrong, that which is forbidden, but has become such a part of our lives. This God is amazing. 
He helps us to put off that which is evil. We read about this in the New Testament. We read in Ephesians where he says, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man that is corrupt according to the lust. Put on the new man. And in the text that he goes on, some of it includes, put off the lying. Put off the stealing. Put off the anger and the malice. Put off the critical remarks. And he, he puts that all within this framework of walking by the lust. The old man. And in this text, he's demanding that we walk in righteousness. We read about that. Peter writes about it to the people that he's ministering to. As obedient children, no longer fashioning yourselves according to formal lusts in your ignorance, but as he which is called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of lifestyle. That's what conversation meant in 1411 in the King James. Your, whole, your actions, the way you walk, you talk, however you go, conversation in all that you do. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. We read in Thessalonians where Paul is writing to that church, for this is the will of God, even your cleanliness, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. He goes on that every one of you should know how to possess your body in sanctification and honor. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Now he's told us this is the way we're supposed to live, but we battle, but we struggle the old man, the old temper, the old lips come back when it comes to the gossip. The old reactions when somebody irritates us. The old response of, of judging individuals. The old response of looking at things that we shouldn't look at. To want to do things that are no longer encouraged. Go to the book of Romans. Hold your finger here. Go to the book of Romans and watch Ebenezer at work. The book of Romans in the New Testament talks at length after in this passage in the book of Romans, he has talked about sin and how sin has dominated every individual. And he's talking about how sin has, has captivated people. Even the moral man, even the, the, the one who is worshiping the stars and the beasts, even the one who is coming to worship centers, he said, oh, sin is just is dominating. Then in chapter 4, he talks about the work of Jesus Christ and how he's come and given his life to break that power of sin and that penalty of sin. Chapter 5 develops at chapter 6. He's talking about you and me who have already come to belief. And he says, you and I who have been forgiven because we've come to Christ, asked him to forgive us. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? Know ye not? Don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death, we're, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man has been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not right now serve sin. Look at down verse 11. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves, you're dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey in the lust thereof. What's he talking about? You don't have to be one who loses your temper. You don't have to be one that can't control your speech. You don't have to be one that is dominated by a habit, by an addiction. You don't have to be one that is, that is controlled by greed and materialism or prejudice. He's saying that's all in the past. 
Jesus died for you to, be, to overcome those things. You just have to reckon in your mind. Stop letting it happen. And he goes on, verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but right now yield yourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead, as your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We go all the way down. Verse 17. But God be thanked that you were servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered, being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Who freed you, Ebenezer? Who helps you, Ebenezer? The God of our help. The one who helps and assists us. There's a painting that's been sold now to a private party by Wretch or Wright, or however you say his name. And this painting is called Checkmate. The fellow on the left, according to the, the paint, the artist, excuse me, the painter, he said that it is a depiction of Satan on the right side, he on the left side. He has put the gentleman on the right side in checkmate so that that individual has no other move and they are vying for the man's soul in this game. That was the, that was the reason it was done. That was to portray how we as individuals, we are so often dominated by sin in our lives that Satan brings things in. He brings the Ashtaroth. He brings the veil to us. They look appealing. We get caught up in it and we're dominated by it. There's a story that goes around about this painting. That one international champion in chess was there at the museum when it was still on display and he said to his friend wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute and he studied that painting and studied that painting and finally said i can save that man i know the move to get him out of checkmate do you know who it is that says i can save you from being checkmated it's jesus christ it's ebenezer the God of our help. You do not have to be dominated by some type of, of an addiction or a weakness spiritually in your life. You can live with power in your life and victory in your life because we worship this morning an Ebenezer. A God who helps us. A God who helps to clean up the messes that we make with bad decisions. A God who helps us to overcome our personal weaknesses and our addictions. A God who helped them and helps us to overcome trials and fears that afflict us. Let's go back to chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel had said, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. And we re read in verse 4 that the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth. Now, go back a little bit. The end of verse 3. Samuel said, he says, prepare your hearts for the Lord only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, think with me. They've gone to battle against the Philistines in chapter 4 twice. They lost 4,000 the first time. They lost 30,000 the second time. They got whooped royally. 20 years have gone by. They have not dared to lift a weapon against the Philistines. They're afeard of the Philistines. They don't want to deal with them. But Sammy says, you know what? We can. We can overcome this trial in our life. Well, what happens is the Philistines hear that Samuel has them gathered. That they're meeting at Mizpah, which means watchtower or fortress, looking out for the enemy. And watch what happens. It goes on, and it says in verse 5, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, I'm going to pray for you as they gather together, etc., etc. Verse 7, 
When the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, what's your Bible read? They were afraid. They were afraid of the Philistines. In fact, look at verse 8. They say to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he would save us out of the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel responds. Verse 9. Samuel took a lamb. He offers it for burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And he cries unto the Lord for Israel. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, verse 10, the Philistines drew near to fight against the Israelites. Oh, man. They're absolutely in, intimidated. They're, they're, they're fearful that they're going to, to, they're going to be wiped out. They even say to Samuel, pray for us, pray for us, please pray for us. We're going to get whooped again. Don't stop praying for us. Help us through. And then we read as he's praying, even as they're trying to do what's right, the trial comes. It's got them intimidated. As he's praying, all of a sudden the Philistines come and, and God... As he was offering, the Philistines drew near, verse 10, but the Lord. But the Lord gets involved. The Lord is Ebenezer at this moment. Here he comes, coming to their assistance. It says, and he thundered with a great thunder on, the day, on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them or upset them. Now, wait a minute, that doesn't mean anything to you and me. Let's go all the way back. Let's live back in 1120, and let's see what it would be like. You and I are Philistines. We're going into battle. We believe this. We believe that as we go to war, there is a physical warfare taking place between you and me and whoever we're fighting against. We believe in our theology that there is a spiritual battle also taking place. That our gods are fighting against their gods. And if the gods that are fighting, whoever is the bigger and the stronger, they're going to help us to win this earthly battle. So what's happening in the spiritual realm totally affects what's happening in the physical realm. That's what the Jews, by the way, know is true. The Philistines believed that. So when the thunder comes, thunder that absolutely shakes them physically, that is saying, who's more powerful? The God that they're going against. And they are discomfited. They are overthrown. They are fearful. In fact, it says that the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and chased the Philistines. What's that tell you the Philistines are doing? They're running away. The thunder got to the core of their being and the, the Israelites go out and they're not even, the Philistines aren't in battle array. They're in battle runaway. And the Jews track them down, they wipe them out from behind. God is such an amazing God that Samuel says, we got to worship this God because this God is the God of our help. He helped us in this trial that came to us when we were trying to do what's right. They came up, sneaking up on us, trying to wipe us out. They came to defeat us, and they have defeated us in the past, this difficulty, this trial, but God helped us out of it. And so he cries out and he says, wow, Ebenezer, this is the first victory we've had in decades. In fact, read the rest of the chapter. It talks about how they take back lands that they have not occupied in generations. He gives them such an amazing victory. God is Ebenezer in this entire text. Hey, here's what we got. We've gotten this story that God is assisting them through a trial. Does he ever do that for us? I will never leave thee nor 
How does he do it? He'll never allow us to be tempted above that which we are. That's the God we worship this morning. That's why we gather today. We gather today to celebrate Ebenezer, the God who helps us, the God who gives us the victory over trials, who says to us that when we face trials and difficulties, count it all joy. If you lack wisdom, call upon me. I will give you the wisdom. I will not upbraid you. I will not say, how dare you ask again? I will give you everything you need to have victory in your life. I will help you to overcome that battle that you're struggling with when it comes to a financial difficulty, a health problem. I'm there to help you out. He talks about in Romans 5 about how we glory in the tribulations. In other words, we're not defeated by it. We just say, hey, we can do this. We can handle it. We can go through. We can work. Why? Because God is shedding abroad in our hearts that love, that help, that Ebenezer that he gives us. That's what this is all about. This isn't about you meeting an obligation this morning. This isn't about you fulfilling some type of, you know, a 1030 schedule. This is about worshiping Ebenezer and thinking and thanking and remembering the God that we're gathered here for this morning who said, set aside a time, come and think about me, and when you come and think about me, thank me. Thank me because I help you to clean up a lot of the messes you get yourself into. Thank me because I'm one who can give you the, ability, the power and the ability to overcome things that, that overcome you. Thank me because I am going to assist you through trials and, and difficulties that you face. Ebenezer. Ebenezer. That's what worship is today. Worshiping and thanking the God of our help. Now here, let's close with this. Don't don't close your Bibles. There's two more from the text. But let's wind down with this. What did they do to get God to be their Ebenezer? Why did he respond as Ebenezer to them? What, what, What from a human point of view are we supposed to do in light of the fact that he promises to help us? What do we do? Do we, do, we, do we make a mess just to prove him? Do we engage ourselves in some type of an addiction, some type of a problem, just to see if he'll do it? No. No. But what if we're already there? Watch the text. Watch what the people do and what it says, that God hitherto has helped them. Oh, we'll summarize it this way, just trying to keep it simple for, for remembrance sake. We need to remember our position. We need to remember who we are and who he is. What I mean by that is this. Verse 3. Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel and said, If you do, return unto the Lord with all your heart. Remember him. Remember him. Do you remember it says that it said in verse 2, All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It is the idea that they came to Samuel. After all this time, the the first two battles in chapter 4, they didn't even seek out assistance. They didn't even want to hear. Samuel was a prophet. Go back to chapter 3. The last two verses talk about how great a prophet Samuel was. They don't even ask him. But now they come to Samuel. Now they're saying, hey, we've got ourselves into a problem. We, We know better than this. And he says, return to the Lord. He says, you've come lamenting. This is time you listen to God. Not just show up, not just gather when you gather at the tabernacle and you do your thing and go through your rituals and say you're worshiping God. Think about this. Focus on this. Remember who you are. You are his people. He has said, I will be your God. 
remember the Lord. Remember your position. He is Lord. You are his creation. You are to listen to him. Not do him a favor by saying, I come to church, therefore God's got to do whatever I want. He's the creator. We are the created. We come and we are to listen to him, not him listen to us. That was a big change for them. They haven't done that in decades. Repent personally. Repent personally. He said, return to the Lord with all your hearts. Put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. You're going this way. You're doing this type of stuff. Turn around and do just the opposite. Now, I want you to catch something. Chapter 4, when they got whooped, in chapter 4, they blamed God. It, when, when God in chapter 6 brings back the ark, they go and they grab the ark, they open it up. They were not supposed to touch it. They violate it. 50,000 of their people are killed. And what does it say? It says in chapter 6, they lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people. This is exactly the way many people repent. Corinthians talks about it this way, worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is the idea that we're upset over consequences. We're upset we got caught. We're upset that there's chastening, that there's correction. Godly sorrow is repentance over what we did. Not the consequences, but our choices. And there's a huge difference, is there not? It's a vast difference. The difference is what these people do, they have a totally different attitude. They lamented after the Lord. They are seeking Him. They are coming and they are grieving. The first time they're grieving. They got upset. They grieved over the, the consequence of what they did, but now, now they're just saying, God, we're, we're wrong. We've been wrong. This is what repentance is about. Repentance isn't saying, oh, oh, I, I'm really sorry because now I got found out. I'm really sorry because now I'm going to be fined. Now I'm going to be penalized. So now I'm going to repent. Worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow says, God, I, I mean this, I want to change. I want to really do something different. And it goes with replacing the pattern. They remembered their position. They repented personally. And part of it is replacing the pattern. Get rid of Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. What you have is a putting off and a putting on. And they did it. They stopped what they were doing. They just didn't hear what Samuel said. They actually responded to what he said. They said, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's a forbidden deed that we're doing. We've got to stop doing it. And we're going to put in its place something different. You're right. It's a forbidden deed. Cursing and cussing is a forbidden action. We've got to replace it with something different. You're right. It's a forbidden deed to hold a grudge and bitterness towards somebody. We've got to replace that with heaping coals of fire upon somebody's head. You're right. It's a forbidden deed to be prejudiced against people, to judge them by sight and sight only. We are going to have to extend ourselves and receive others better than what we've done. You're right. It's a forbidden deed to abuse our bodies. 
by using the drugs, the alcohol that would afflict us. We need to change that up. You're right. Immorality, fornication, it is wrong. It is wrong to look at the sights or to engage in it. You're right, God. It is wrong for me not to work on my marriage, to be angry, to just, to just insist that we're just going to keep on going down this road of destruction. And I've got to change my attitude and how I'm treating my spouse, my family members. That's when Ebenezer comes into play. That's when he engages into people's lives. When he comes and, become, and, and helps them through those situations. But boy, is this tough. There's a true story about Lucas Sabinda, however you say it. He's an individual in South Africa that's walking through a junglish area. And as he was going, and he, had, he, he was one of those individuals like me that do not like snakes. He's going along, and all of a sudden as he came through this one area, there was a boa constrictor partly across the path that he was walking in this woodsy area. He froze in fear. Well, the constrictor didn't. The constrictor immediately moved to him and started wrapping up. He was so frozen in fear. He was like you and your dreams where all of a sudden you're afraid and you can't run. And he just stood there, stood there, stood there. The snake started wrapping up. And the snake got to a point where he started constricting. And it basically shocked this gentleman, this Lucas, into action. And he realized that it, he's got to do something now. It's going to be too late in a matter of a couple of minutes. He's got to do something. got to act. Here's what he told the reporter he did. I decided the only way to save myself from this monster was to bite it just below the head. He bit it, he kicked it, he punched the snake until it released him. Then he killed it with a stick and took it home and, you know, skinned it. He won. It's not easy. It's not easy to defeat a boa constrictor that's got its, you know, its fangs in you. It's not easy overcoming Something that has us fearing. Something that has a domination in our life. It's not easy. But that's where Ebenezer comes in. If you and I remember our position, we repent personally, and if we replace the pattern, and then if we return to prayer. If we return to prayer. Look at the text. Look at where it says in verse 6. They gathered together at Mizpah, they drew the water, and they poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. You know what that water business is all about? Well, neither do I totally. But this is the best that I understand and some others that, that I think are scholarly understand, is that they were showing God that water isn't essential. We need the water. But God, we need you more. So right now at this moment, we're pouring it out as if we're pouring out our hearts to you, saying, God, we need you. Lord, we need you. Lord, help us. And they fasted. That is, they are portraying to God, I'm putting aside my physical needs of food, my physical needs of sleep, my physical needs of the water in that, in that moment for them. That they were saying, God, we need you. We need you more than we need this food. We need you more than I need my rest. And they prayed. Not only did they pray in that regard, but they turned to Samuel and they say, you pray for us as well. Doesn't this remind you? Doesn't this remind you of the book of James? Where James writes and he says very simply that he says to the readers, he said that if any of you would confess your faults one to another and pray for one another, this isn't going to some priest or clergy for forgiveness. This is the idea of going to somebody you have confidence in and saying, I'm battling, I'm struggling, pray for me. 
I am going to work on this area in this, uh, my life. I need your help. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer. That's where God comes in as Ebenezer. That's how he responds. What do we do with the story? One, we worship Ebenezer. That is our primary thought this morning. That we're here to worship. We'll do that in a moment with a song. We need to walk away and say, I need to let him be my Ebenezer this week. I need to let him help me this week. Help me when I've made some bad decisions. Not purposely go out and do them, but when I've got myself, I took a wrong turn. God, please help me. Give me wisdom to get out of this. God, help me to overcome a temptation in my life. I see that ugly anger. I see that ugly greed. I see that ugly gossip. Help me to overcome it. Lord, help me. I, I've got a trial I'm facing this week. It's at work. It's dealing with somebody that we've got a conflict with. Lord, help me. Give me this wisdom. Give me the assistance. Give me the stamina to do it, to do right. Be the type of person that God says, I will be able to come and be an Ebenezer to. Because you're the type of person that you have remembered your position. He is Lord. He is God. He is the one that we bow the knee to this morning. Remember that you need to repent personally as needed. You need to replace the problems that you've created, the bad that's come into your life, the difficulties, the addictions. You need to return to prayer. And watch God Ebenezer into your life. You know, can't help. You've got you to be thinking. You've got to be thinking the song, don't you? Come thou fount of every blessing. Here I raise my... It's written by a man, Robert Robertson. Robinson. He's a, a young man who grew up in England, and uh, his dad died when he was just a youngster. So he doesn't have male direction, and he gets himself into all kinds of a mess. As a teenager, he goes into churches with his friends. They get drunk, and they go into churches, and they try to break up church services. That's their fun. He's, he's you know, into robbing people and different things like that. But he's really, as he's reaching his later teens, he's realizing this is really a hard, hard life I'm choosing. So he goes and listens to a, f a famous preacher, George Whitfield. Do you ever hear of him? He hears Whitfield preach. Oh, he is so convicted. He is so smitten by the Spirit. He realizes he needs Christ as his Savior. That he is, his life portrays he is not a follower of Jesus. And ever, in a short period of time, he repents of his sin. He calls upon Christ to forgive him. And he starts serving the Lord. Two years later, he pens the words to a song that's in our hymn book, a song we sing all the time. Come thou fount of every blessing. And he's giving his life story. He's singing. He's telling how God has worked. This is our worship this morning. This is our worship to the fount of blessings. As we talk about the Lord, we're going to sing in a moment. But if you're here this morning, and you do not know Christ. You are not sure of your eternal destiny. While we sing, we're having our staff go to those doors over there. We're going to sing, and you are more than welcome to get up, to step over that direction. Don't worry. Don't worry. If you say, well, somebody will be bothered. There's movement around this auditorium that, do that doesn't bother people. It's fine. Go over there. They'll take you aside. They'll talk with you. They'll show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. How you know for sure 
that Christ has freed you from the penalty and the power of sin and given you eternal life. We're worshiping as believers this morning. Those of us who have already done that at some time, we're here this morning. We're going to praise the God who is our Ebenezer. Some of you will just sing out of motions. But I hope and pray that the majority of you sing from your heart with meaning, with clarity, and, and dedication to Christ this morning. God, I need you. Come thou fount of blessing to my life. I need you this week. This is our prayer as we close. Our song prayer that we sing together this morning.